Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Have you heard you can listen to your favorite news podcasts ad-free? Good news. With Amazon Music, you have access to the largest catalog of ad-free top podcasts included with your Prime membership. To start listening, download the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts. That's amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Hi there. Before we start the show, I got to tell you about Omaha Steaks. They have a limited time Father's Day offer that your dad is going to love, love, love. When you go to omahasteaks.com, enter the code liberal in the search bar and save 55%. For $79.99, your summer sizzle pack for dad will include the following. Four natural lean top sirloin steaks, hand-carved and aged 21 days for tenderness and flavor. Four boneless chicken breasts, four gourmet jumbo franks and kielbasa sausages, a package of all-beef meatballs, four perfectly browned potatoes au gratin, four caramel apple tartlets, and an Omaha Steak signature seasoning packet. Dad's going to get all this delicious food plus a free pound of steak cut bacon. This amazing gift is ready to be shipped straight to Dad's door in time for Father's Day for just $79.99. These packages come flash frozen, vacuum sealed, and delivered in a cooler with dry ice safely to his door. All backed by Omaha Steaks, unconditional 100% money back guarantee, and the best customer service anywhere. It's a simple, delicious way to treat Dad this Father's Day. So don't wait. Go to omahasteaks.com and type the code LIBERAL in the search bar to order the Summer Sizzle Pack for Father's Day right now. That's omahasteaks.com and type liberal in the search bar. And now let the cartoons begin. Broadcasting from Resistance Headquarters. Relentlessly fighting back against the clown dictator and his regime of deplorables. Never give up, never surrender. This is the Bob Seska Show. Presented by BubbleGenius.com. From our nation's capital, it is Wednesday, June 17, 2020, and this is the interview edition of the Bob Seska Show on the Sexy Liberal Podcast Network. You might know my guest from the Rachel Maddow Show, and specifically the accompanying Maddow blog website. I'm talking, of course, about the great Steve Bennon. Steve's also the author of the brand new book, Out Now, The Imposters, How Republicans Quit Governing and Seized American Politics. Link in the description at bobseska.com. You know, I've been a reader of Steve's work going all the way back to Blogosphere 1.0 when he wrote for Washington Monthly. So I can't wait to ask him about a gazillion different things today. Oh, by the way, if you like what you hear, please help support this show by subscribing to our bonus content at bobseskashow.com. Okay, let's talk with the great Steve Bennon from Mattoblog. Tell me about your book. Let's start off there. Tell me about The Imposters, which was officially released yesterday, right? Correct, yes. So the, so the book is about Republican, the Republican Party over the last decade or so, making the transition away from being a governing party. And what it's become, in my, in my argument, is that it's become what I call a post-policy party. Mm-hmm. And by that I mean it is a party that has become indifferent to the substance of policymaking. That it's against expertise and analysis, it's hostile toward evidence, and it's, it's indifferent 
to mm-hmm. how ideas are supposed to be are supposed to be crafted and scrutinized and implemented. Yeah. And I think as a result of that, we're dealing with a, a political crisis that's driven by that that identical that exact problem. You know, and it's a, it's such an outstanding topic for a book, given how uh, Trump, a guy without any core values whatsoever, has right. basically just hijacked the Republican Party, borrowing bits and pieces from uh, Roger Ailes, Alex Jones, even. I mean, did you ever think, uh, covering Alex Jones years ago, that eventually we'd kind of have the Alex Jones presidency, uh, more or less? <laughs> and it's, of course, it's all filtered through Trump's sociopathy and cruel whimsy. Uh, is that what you're observing as well in the book? Well, you know, it's interesting. One of the arguments that I make is that the problem did not start exclusively with Trump. That, mm-hmm. and to my mind, the problem really started at the end of the Bush-Cheney era, when Republicans basically found themselves at a crossroads. Their party, had been, their agenda had been rejected by voters, and Bush-Cheney had failed so spectacularly. It was up to the party and its leaders to basically come up with a new agenda and a new, a new. What are its, what would its priorities be? What would its policies be? Mm-hmm. And what I think they decided at the time, what Republicans decided at the time is that they weren't going to have an agenda at all. They were just going to be def- they were to define themselves by their opposition to whatever Barack Obama was for. And so what we saw for eight years was a party that had effectively given up on taking government seriously at all. And then to my mind, the argument that I make in the book is that helped pave the way for Trump, who, of course, as you just noted, has no use for ideas or substance of governing at all. Yeah. And so it's really, it, to me, we had a problem throughout the Obama era with Republicans who didn't care. And then now we see that problem on steroids with a president who, who really doesn't care. Yeah, right, right. Do you, where do you think that came from? How did, What was the spark that triggered this movement away from policy and into just winning at all costs, owning the libs? It seems like it may have been kind of prompted by the fact that Barack Obama was more or less untouchable. I mean, they really couldn't find anything that stuck to the wall with Barack Obama. They were, there weren't any personal scandals. There wasn't any right. anything salacious in his background. So it seemed like throughout that eight-year span, they really struggled to find something. So in absence of actually latching on to anything, did they just start making shit up? Is that kind of how it started? Well, you know, in part, I think that the issue for me, and when I look back at that era, and when I analyze it in the book, it's, I think that Republicans made it a, a conscious choice that, to, to cooperate with, with Democrats, to, to work constructively on anything with, with a Democratic White House, would somehow be against, it would hurt Republicans electorally. It would give them a disadvantage. Yeah. You know, Mitch McConnell had these, a series of quotes in which he basically was confessing to the fact that any kind of cooperation, any kind of bipartisan uh, constructive policymaking would be seen by voters as a success. And yeah. they wanted to deny Obama and Democrats successes. Mm-hmm. So they said, no to literally everything. Even when Obama would agree with them, they would then change their minds and say that they were against what they used to be for. Yeah. And so that, you know, that became so problematic that that government simply didn't work. I mean, we have a Madisonian model of, of, of government, and it, it caused this crisis where Democrats would work on solutions, and they would say they didn't care what, what, what worked and what those solutions entailed. And so that, that helps, I think, pave the way for someone like Trump, who has no background in public in government, no background in public service, no real interest in how government works or how policies are formed or how they are implemented. And and you couple that with an ideological hostility on the right to government working at all, and it kind of creates this toxic stew. Would the notion of the imposters exist at all without such a hefty uh, propaganda wing, without Fox News Channel, AM Talk Radio, would that have functioned? Because it seemed to me as if 
it'd be really difficult to get the fiction to resonate without that, right? It seems like Roger Ailes had a gigantic part to play in this. You know, one of the points, it's such a good, it's such an important point, Bob, and I'm glad you raised that because I think that one of the things that I make, one of the arguments that I present in the book is that it's, that there's an importance on incentives. Now, if Republicans didn't have an incentive to just abandon their governing responsibilities, if they didn't have an incentive, they'd behave differently. Mm-hmm. If they were rewarded for good behavior instead of bad behavior, then their, their, their actions would change. Their behaviors would change. They, the way they conduct themselves would change. Mm-hmm. And so I think that conservative media has played an, a major role in creating this unhealthy set of incentives where Republicans believe that they can get away with abandoning their governing responsibilities, where they feel like they'll actually, they'll actually run the risk of being punished by acting responsibly and engaging in, in serious policymaking. And so that, those incentives guide their behavior in ways that really work to everyone's disadvantage. And it seems as though uh, the imposters have created a new battleground for the political debate here. I mean, it's it's gone from left versus right, more or less. I mean, obviously, there are various iterations of that, to basically what we're looking at now, which is reality versus fiction. I mean, how can right. how can the fiction side possibly sustain itself in the long run? It just seems like such a, a rickety, unstable foundation for any sort of long-term movement. Oh, yeah, I completely agree. I mean, it, it, one would like to think that in time, if you elect a bunch of people, to be in positions of authority and they don't know what to do with that authority and they don't really seem particularly interested in learning that it's, that is, that is untenable dynamic. Like that is a government cannot and, and would not work under those circumstances. And so, mm. I mean, I, I think that one of the points I make in the last chapter, and I thought a little bit about looking ahead to how this can be fixed and what, you know, what kind of future we can have with this. The argument that I make, one of the arguments I make is that parties change when voters tell them they have to change. That when, when, you know, we talked a little bit earlier about incentives, you know, so long as they feel like as long as Republicans believe that they can continue to win elections and ignore their governing responsibilities at the same time, they'll continue to do that. But once they lose, it forces them to reassess it. It forces them to look anew at, okay, well, what is our platform going to be? Can we just recycle the old one again? Well, no. (laughs) I mean, that, you know, which is what we're seeing right now with Republicans. And so my hope is that in the, in the event of a Republican defeat in 2020 or 2024 or whenever, it will force the party to look anew at, at, at their governing responsibilities. Are they prepared to kind of re, rework those muscles that have, have atrophied over the course of the last 12 years? Yeah. You know, what, will that be enough to kind of spur that change? You know, it, one of the things I, I think is worth, that is worth emphasizing is that you know, I've disagreed with the Republican agenda for much of my adult life, but I recognize the fact that they used to take governing at least somewhat seriously. I mean, oh, yeah. you and I might, you and I might agree that they're wrong on a lot of issues, but it's not just about being wrong on the issues. It's about how they approach going about dealing with those issues. Mm-hmm. What, what my book is trying to, my book tries to emphasize is that it's not enough to just say that Republicans are wrong on, on, on the issues. It's how they go about dealing with those issues that is the real problem. Do you think the winning at all cost model is also driven by worsening demographics for a mostly white only party like the GOP, for lack of a better term, the oncoming browning of America? is ter- It seems like it's terrifying to Republicans, and they can't really wiggle out of that very well on policy alone. So it seems like they're now going for, well, 
rah, we're the alpha men. Uh, we win and we do whatever we have to do to <laughs> to win. Is it the demographics driving that too a little bit? Yeah, I think I think there's something to that. And you know, and on a on a related note, I think one of the things that that, that those demographic challenges are leading the Republicans to take extra aggressive uh, measures as it relates to voting restrictions. Yeah. You know, when they when they look ahead at at a country that's becoming increasingly diverse racially and ethnically, they start to see well they could change their policies and become more popular, or they can make it harder for Americans to show up and cast the ballot. Right. And and unfortunately, I think what we're seeing in recent years is that they're choosing that latter path. Uh, it, 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 one of the things I, I talk about in the book is that you know Republicans are not dumb. It's not a question about about of intelligence. Mm-hmm. Republicans are capable of taking their governing responsibilities seriously and, 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 and analyzing evidence and appreciating the importance of data. We know that for sure because look at how they deal when it, with election data and, and, and districts and gerrymandering. It, you know, they, are, they know how to use data when they are rigging elections. They don't know how to use data when they're trying to pass health care or immigration or dealing with foreign policy. So I, I, I think you're right on the demographics being something that is very much on their minds. I just wish that they would deal with the issue in a more constructive way. Yeah, right. I, it seems like uh, while there are some dumb ones, the ones who are very, very smart are actually pretty good at acting dumb. Uh, I cite uh, Ted, <laughs> Ted Cruz as an example. I mean, Ted Cruz right. isn't a dummy. He just plays no. one on TV, and he's really no. obvious when he does it, isn't he? You know, the funny thing about Ted Cruz, and I've made this point online probably, so forgive me if you've seen this, but the point I've made on, about Ted Cruz is yeah. he's not dumb. He thinks everyone else is dumb. That, <laughs> right. Right. Because the things, the things that he says, well, you and I know that they're wrong and ridiculous. He knows that they're wrong and ridiculous. Mm-hmm. But he's of the opinion, I think, that voters are so foolish and so easily fooled that he can say these absurd things and get away with it because he has no real respect for the intelligence of the electorate. Oh, yeah. And so, so I mean, I, of course, there's a range in, among, in Republican politics between the, those who are very bright and those who are very who are not. Yeah. Um, but I, but I think the reason I emphasize the, the idea that Republicans are not dumb is that I don't want to give the impression that the party itself is, is incapable of governing because I don't think that's the case. I mm-hmm. think they are capable of governing. Yeah. I think they can. I think they can pursue their pursue conservative goals in, in an intellectually rigorous way, the way the party used to in, in, in decades past. I just think that at this point, they're not doing that for a variety of reasons, not the least of which is that they've become rather lazy and they, and they don't really have any incentives to change. At least they haven't, they don't, haven't felt any incentives to change yet. Yeah, yeah. It seems like they've boxed themselves in with the dumbness, with the dumb act, with the who me business, where... For example, they feel as though in order to appeal to a certain demographic and to get the, you know, like the attacks on academia and intelligentsia and uh, East Coast elite liberals and so on, in order to get those attacks to land, they also have to kind of uh, pander to the dummies. You know, that's kind of how it looks uh, from the outside, especially, doesn't it? Yeah, I, I think that, you know, I, 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 I certainly hear what you're saying. I mean, I think that there's, they have an image in their mind as to who their base is, who mm-hmm. is going to appeal to, who's going to find their message appealing, yeah. who's going to show up at their rallies, who's going to donate money to their campaigns. And, and so, I mean, ideally, a, a party that hopes to be a governing party would want to expand its reach 
have a big tent, uh, appeal to as broad an audience as possible, and expand on that as, as, best, as, as best they can for, to win elections. But the Republicans are making a gamble in recent years. They, they've decided that they're not going to reach out. They're going to reach in, and, and they're going to appeal to that base and literally no one else. And the way to do that in their minds and their strategy is to do everything they can to get that base as angry and enraged and engaged as possible. And the result is a politics that's increasingly toxic and which does not work. You know, and along those lines, would uh, any other Republican have treated the coronavirus the way Trump has? In other words, uh, (laughs) would say John McCain or even uh, Ted Cruz, going back to a previous example, have turned it into this political hot potato, inspiring their uh, disciples to refuse masks and social distancing rules and all that? Or is this incompetent malevolence purely a feature of Trumpism rather than the broader Republican Party? I mean, any other presidential level leader on the GOP side would they have precipitated this kind of madness? That's a great question. I think that, to me, there are two elements of this. This is a, this is a coin with two sides. We have the policy, and then we have the politics. Mm-hmm. And on the policy side, you know, Trump has failed quite spectacularly when it comes to pretty much the entire federal response. Yeah. Downplaying the significance of the crisis, mixed messages throughout, failing on everything from personal protective equipment to, uh, to, to, to testing across the board as a substantive matter. Uh, he failed on, on every front. Yeah. It is easy for me to imagine, because I believe that Republican politics is dominated by this post-policy thinking, it's easy for me to imagine a different Republican, one of his one of Trump's rivals from 2016, for example, I can imagine them doing nearly as badly as Trump, <laughs> because I think this, this, this attitude is permeating the party where they're not taking governing seriously. So that's the policy front. On the politics front, I think you're really emphasizing an important point that, that shouldn't be too, too quickly put aside. I think that Trump is unique on the political front. I, you know, if, if Jeb Bush were president right now, hypothetically, yeah. if Jeb Bush were president right now, would I, could I imagine him engaging in the kind of political garbage that we hear from Trump on, on the coronavirus? I think it's unlikely. He might, he might have failed on the policy, but I would be surprised if Jeb Bush or Carly Fiorina, or you know, pick your candidate, if any of them would be quite as malicious in the, in the, in the, in the exploitation of the, of the virus for political ends. Do you agree, by the way? Do you think that makes sense? Oh, yeah, yeah, absolutely. In fact, um, you know, what I'm seeing, too, here is, does Trump know that beyond his words, that his behavior also resonates? And specifically, I go back to what I mentioned a second ago, which is the masks and social distancing. And right. he seems to at least understand on a certain level that his behavior, what he projects on television, again, outside of the crackpot crazy things that he blurts, uh, that even right. just the act of not wearing a mask is going to resonate with his people to the point where now seems like there's this gigantic counterfactual movement to just screw it. We're not wearing masks. We're not going to social distance at all. And in fact, if you tell us that we have to wear a mask, why that's unconstitutional and we're going to scream about it on YouTube. Does Trump know that that's what he's doing? Probably. (laughs) My best guess is probably. (laughs) Right. There's no way to tell for sure, but I mean, it seems like. Well, right, right. I mean, I I will confess to you, Bob, that I do not know Donald Trump personally. (laughs) (laughs) He, he never returns my calls. He doesn't respond to my emails. Um, so I mean, there is a degree of speculation involved in this. But, yeah. but you know, I, I, I will say, though, that, you know, one of the 
just kind of tie it back to my book for a moment. You know, I think that Trump is an embodiment of this post-policy thesis insofar as he wants not only his party but his followers to be uh, to be so antagonistic towards experts and analysis and data. Yeah, yeah. And so when the experts and the data and the evidence tell people, you know, don't go to Tulsa into a, into a 19,000 seat theater, which is enclosed around people who you don't know and stop wearing masks, you know, when the evidence and the data and the experts say that that's a bad idea, he reflexively says, reject those people. Don't, yeah. don't trust experts. You know, the, you know, the eggheads with glasses, they're not to be relied upon. Donald Trump is to be relied upon. And that, and that is very much inconsistent with my, the thesis of my book, that that, that is post-policy thinking in, in, its, in its embodiment with Donald Trump. And so, you know, I think the, the mask issue is, is, on the one hand, insane because, you know, there's just common sense and we were in the midst of a pandemic and this shouldn't be too complicated. But Donald Trump is so hostile towards, towards reason and he demands the same of his followers that we're stuck in this ridiculous culture war that just it seems so baffling to people like you and me. Oh, yeah. And in fact, uh, not to necessarily promote a book that's not yours, but uh, Tom Nichols, the <laughs> never Trumper Tom Nichols, wrote a, an amazing book that I think encapsulates a lot of what we're observing right now. It's called The Death of Expertise. And it seems like right. the I don't want to say necessarily the entire Republican Party, but at least the the Trump infected portion of the Republican Party is attacking experts as much as they're attacking liberals. And it doesn't matter what the politics are of those particular experts. Just if you're an expert, you're going to at some point debunk uh, the fiction that we were talking about because it is a party that's now more or less based on fiction. And in order to facilitate that, they have to uh, undermine the expertise of the people who know what they're talking about, right? Yeah. And, and, you know, I'm I'm really glad to hear you say this because it's so in keeping with, with, with my book, it, yeah. with what I was into, with, with with what I'm documenting, you know, I'm I'm just kind of going through in my mind, you know, on on healthcare when when Republicans unveiled a, a plan in 2017, and stakeholders, people like hospital administrators and insurance company executives and the American Medical Association, the American Nurses Association, the mm-hmm. ARP, all said this is going to hurt a lot of people and and it will not solve any problems. The Republican response was, don't listen to the experts. Yeah, don't listen to the people who who know what they're talking about who've invested their adult lives in these issues, don't listen to them. And the same is true on things like the Iran deal. You know, the experts told them the Iran nuclear deal was working. It was having exactly the intended effect. Iran was not advancing its nuclear program at mm-hmm. all. It was working perfectly. And and what was the White House, the Trump White House's response? Don't listen to the experts. That's right. We had to prioritize politics over policy. We had to prioritize undoing Obama's agenda as opposed to building our own agenda. And, and so, right, this is, this is very much, this is the problem, I think, with American politics right now. We cannot advance policymaking in any real way so long as we have a party that is so allergic to governing. Is it a waste of time to hector these people about contradicting themselves or calling out their hypocrisy? They don't really care about those two things anymore, do they? No, I, I mean, I, I think you're right. I, I think that I can think of so many instances in recent years in which in which you and me and people like who are, who are of like mind yeah. will, will point out these hypocrisies and inconsistencies. And in response, what we generally see from Trump and people like him is a, a shrugging of the shoulders. But mm-hmm. the reason I, I, the, 
I, I realize that this is, is controversial to a certain degree because there's a school of thought that says that, that the very idea of, of, doing the, of, of engaging in that process of pointing it out is pointless. I, I want to disagree. Yeah, and me that, too. I, I think that, and, and, I, and I think that the reason I disagree is not because I, I think that Trump will somehow come around or Mitch McConnell will somehow change his mind. Well, the reason I think it's important is because I want the public to know. I want, I, I think that it is important to shine a light on these problems, yep. these hypocrisies, these inconsistencies, in hopes that there's a cumulative effect for the electorate, that, the, that voters know, that the public knows, and that they can then use that information responsibly when, they, when they're able to cast a ballot, unless Republicans have rigged the election against them. <laughs> well, and it's also um, a matter, too, of this ongoing debate that I think that you guys have on The Rachel Maddow Show, which is... What do we address? What do we focus on? Uh, Trump's words versus his deeds. And I kind of come down in the middle of that, uh, in between, where I feel like, well, to an extent, both seem to me as if they're important to confront. Certainly his deeds rise to a higher level, where you really have to focus on that more often. But I've even noticed that uh, that Rachel does occasionally get into a, a couple of Trump's tweets, depending on how badly they resonate. So where do you uh, specifically land on that uh, balancing act between those two aspects of Trump's behavior? That's a great question. I think that for me, and I, and this, we, this is something we talked about on the show with some mm-hmm. regularity is that Trump is an unreliable narrator of his own presence. Yeah. You know, he'll, yeah. he'll say things about how things are going and what he intends to do. And those words have no value. And so you know, for example, if he were to announce today that he was going to pursue some policy agenda, we have no reason to believe that that's true. Mm-hmm. He, he may have, he may say it, and we may all hear it, but we are at a point with his presidency that where we know that Trump doesn't know and doesn't necessarily care what's actually going on around him. And so, <laughs> I when I hear his words about any subject, mm-hmm. I, I I take them to have effectively no predictive value. That said. I do take them seriously insofar as it lets me know about his priorities, about his values, about his efforts to divide America and, 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 and see how he can pit Americans against one another. You know, I, it's not about using those words as a, as, a, as a predictive value in terms of I don't think that he's telling the truth about what's going to happen. But I do think it's important to place – I see the significance of Trump using words to, to divide people and to – to generate an enraged base, there are consequences for that. And so I, I, I feel like I have a responsibility to not just ignore those. Yeah, yeah. It's sometimes hard to know uh, with Trump, especially with his tweets, especially with some of the crap that he says during his rallies, uh, which we're going to be treated to uh, for the first time in a while uh, this weekend. But it's an ongoing debate that I have between whether Trump is deliberately trolling us or whether he's earnest in some of the crackpot things that he says. Because I I feel like sometimes he really means the lie. Like he's really trying to sell the lie. He wants you to believe the lie. Whereas other times the lie is there to just irritate us, to frustrate us. And so it's uh, an ongoing, you know, kind of dividing rod process to find where he's being earnest and where he's just deliberately trying to jerk our chain. Do you, uh, do you see that too? Do you see that dichotomy with uh, his approach to just uh, blurting insane crap? Sure. Yeah, yeah, of course. I mean, I, it's been a while since we've seen a, a rally, but all of the events that I've seen him hold, 
you know, for example, when he starts talking about fake news and yeah. you know, he'll point in the back where the, where the cameras are and he'll say various, he'll say that CNN's camera just went off when it hasn't. And, you know, I, I recognize, I think it's painfully obvious when he does that, that he's really just playing to the cameras. He's, he, he, there's no real sincerity to this. He's not drawing attention to something that he thinks considers important. Mm-hmm. It's catnip. He's yeah. throwing red meat at, at activists in the hopes that then they'll start chanting or they'll start applauding and are, you know, giving him the praise that he's looking for. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it's, it's hollow. It's meaningless. And, and so, you know, in instances like that, it's easier for me and people like me, I think, to just kind of, you know, roll their eyes and move on. But then there are other times when he uses rhetoric, as you noted a moment ago, there's other times he's using he uses rhetoric at, at valleys that is far more pernicious and is, mm-hmm. is far more alarming. It is much harder to just roll your eyes at. You know, I, I, I think that it's easy. If you listen to the president enough, that, that dichotomy comes into focus. Yeah. You start to can tell the difference between, between obvious routine nonsense and things that, are, that have greater significance. We'll get back to our conversation with Steve Bannon here in just one second. But before we do, let's talk about Plexiter because we're all doing these Zoom meetings. We're all using FaceTime. And the thing that I noticed is every time I'm on FaceTime, I can see all of the weird things about my face. Zoom meetings with coworkers and clients, they're great until you notice those weird things, bags under your eyes and deep wrinkles. Let me tell you, these cameras pick up everything. But now imagine all that's gone. Without risky plastic surgery, just gone in a matter of minutes. I'm talking about Plexiderm, a clinically studied serum that visibly eliminates your wrinkles, crow's feet, and under-eye bags, all in the comfort of your own home. Plexiderm is the solution for your Zoom meeting face. I know, I tried it, I took the test, and I was amazed by the results. The best part is Plexiderm goes on clear and lasts for hours, so nobody's going to know that you're using it unless you tell them. Go to triplexiderm.com and use my code for half off a full-size bottle of Plexiderm plus an additional $10 off. That's half off plus an extra $10 off. Or call 800-685-1292. Mention the code VOICES. Plexiderm is backed by a 30-day money-back guarantee. Visit triplexiderm.com and use the code VOICES. That's code VOICES at triplexiderm.com. The Bob Seska Show. I'd love to get your take on this one. Um, I've been debating with some friends about whether Trump's brand of politics is uniquely, quote-unquote, Trumpism, or if it's just the next iteration of Republicanism. How do you define Trumpism? Does it exist, and do you think it has a shelf life beyond all of this? Do you think it's going to continue to be a, a central component of the Republican Party moving forward. Right. I think about this a lot, and I, there are certain variables that are still a, still need to come into focus. You know, if Trump were to lose badly, hypothetically, in November, mm. let's say he, let's say Biden, uh, Biden wins in a landslide. Yeah. I think that the incentive in Republican politics to move away from Trump and Trump's legacy will be more acute. So, you know, it, it will be. I think I can imagine, for example, a 1981-like environment for Democrats where it, they were welcome to see, they were glad to see Carter go, and, and they made no real re- reference to Carter for a while. Mm-hmm. It, it was just no longer seen nor heard. Yeah. And so if, if Trump were to lose by that margin or something similar, I can imagine Mitch McConnell and others basically saying, Donald who? And then just <laughs> kind of more yeah. or less wanting to, nothing more to do with him. But my only caveat that, to that is Trump had, Trump's followers are really loyal to him more than the party. Yes. I think that, that they love him, not just 
his idea of, of, of this macho persona, and, and not just his anti-immigration policies or, or the, the inherent racism that permeates his politics, I think that they're really invested in, in him personally. And so what I'll be curious to see, and I, I, at this point I really don't know, what I'll be curious to see is whether if Trump were to exit the stage, would his followers demand more of the party to be more like Trump? Would they expect Mitch McConnell and, other, and, and Kevin McCarthy and others to pick up Trump's mantle or to pick up an entirely new one? I don't yet know. It's, it, it is, I think it is easy to imagine Trumpism extending its life beyond Trump's presidency if his base and his followers demand it. I want to ask you about uh, working on The Rachel Maddow Show. I've got lots of questions along these lines. I've been curious for years and years and years, especially when you made that transition from Washington Monthly over to Maddow Blog. What was that like uh, going from Washington Monthly to a cable news network where you're continuing to to blog and present your own point of view, but you're part of a a much bigger machine? How did that process uh, come together? Well, that's a good question. I, I was I was blogging professionally full time for several years before Matt reached out to me, hmm. um, and and so and I and all of my background is in print media. You know, when I first got out of grad school, I started working for a magazine. Yeah, and so I had no background in. Well, personally, I didn't have any background in broadcast media, but you know, I, I love Rachel personally and professionally. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was a big fan of Rachel Maddow's show long before I started working there. And so I, I saw this as an, a great opportunity to expand my reach and to learn about broadcast media and to learn from Rachel Maddow every day, which is something that I, I, I take a great deal of pride in doing. And so it was, it was a bit of a transition because it was a new dynamic for me. But at the same time, uh, I, 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 every day I try to pause to, to appreciate the fact that I have the best job in the world. Yeah. <laughs> I, yeah. I, get to, I get to write from that blog. Uh, I get to work with a great team. You know, I, I'm a producer in the show, but I, there are other producers, and I, I, and I can't say enough, about, enough great things about my colleagues. I get to look, talk to Rachel every day and help kind of change, uh, shape the direction of the show sometimes. And uh, it's incredibly rewarding. Um, for your listeners, if you have a chance to work with Rachel Maddow, I highly recommend it. <laughs> <It's>, uh, <laughs> I assure you that I think every single one of my listeners watches the Rachel Maddow show every night. I know I do. <laughs> I mean, I got to tell you, that show has been such a an oasis of truth and honesty and consistency. One of the things that I notice that is in common between you and Rachel, not only in terms of, generally speaking, your point of view, your worldview, but also the fact that you are so consistent. You both seem to have this almost juggernaut-like focus where I never see any sign of growing exhausted with the issues. I always feel like when I go to Matto Blog, I'm getting a consistent, powerful, and always insightful point of view on what's going on. And that's across the board. So it seems like the the match between your work and Rachel's work was uh, very well connected. Well, first, let me say about that. That's very kind of you to say, and, and I'm grateful for the praise. That's, that means a lot to me, and I thank you. Um, but to your question, yes, of course. I, I, you know, Rachel and I agree on, on effectively everything, and, mm-hmm. and we kind of have a similar vision of the world. We see the, uh, the world through similar eyes. And so, right, when I, and, and so when I joined the team, and I, and I had an opportunity to, to meet the other producers and get a sense of how they approach their responsibilities in the news. I see that we're really just kind of operating as one team and we're all kind of uh, on the same page. And 
I mean, there's certainly people on the staff who have different perspectives and we, you know, we're able to talk these things out and we, certain people recognize the importance of different issues in different ways, but you know, we're all kind of rolling on in, in the same boat in the same direction. And, uh, and it, yeah, of course, I, I think that I, it didn't take long for me to, to realize that I was among a group of folks uh, who made me feel very comfortable and who were, who wanted to, who wanted to do the same kind of work that I did. And so, yeah, I felt uh, very much at home and I continue to feel very much at home. It's been eight, eight and a half years now, believe it or not, since I joined Meadow, uh, Meadows team. And uh, it's, it was the best decision I ever made. Well, professionally. Anyway. <laughs> Marrying my wife was the best decision I ever made personally. <laughs> this job is the second, is the best for, for my professional life. And, you know, at, at the risk of sounding a little like Chris Matthews, um, I kind of have this fantasy that the Rachel Maddow staff uh, obviously including you, is kind of like XCOM during uh, the Cuban Missile Crisis. In that respect, it's like a think tank made up of very, very smart people who are looking at new ways to examine an issue, to examine a crisis in some cases. And one of the most amazing things that you guys do there is coming up with a story or an argument or a point of view that many of us have never heard before. I've got my face pressed up against my computer screen 24-7 practically, and still, right. when I watch the Rachel Maddow show or I check out Maddow blog, I'm seeing things that I hadn't seen before. Yes. I, I, so, I, as you know, I, I, I'm writing a, a high volume of, amount of blog content every day. Yeah. And yes. <laughs> I so appreciate the amount of output that you're responsible for on a daily basis. It is remarkable. Well, thank you. I, I you know, I, that is my goal is to produce a lot of content and, and hopefully content that people enjoy, but, and get something out of, but, uh, there comes a point in the afternoon where I, I kind of scale back a little bit on the publishing and then organize my content for for the show, for Rachel, kind of flagging things that I think are especially important, maybe some developments that happened over the course of the day that I haven't yet written about. And then I organize all of that into uh, into an email that I send around to Rachel and the team. Uh, we then meet uh, usually around now, maybe an hour from now, and, and start going through the list, going through the day. Uh, you know, Rachel is sensitive to the fact that by 9 p.m., 9 p.m. Eastern, when we when our show airs on, on, on MSNBC, uh, there's going to be a lot of news consumers who've already heard a lot of the news. Yeah. You know, they, they listen to the radio on their way home from work, or, mm-hmm. they, or they were reading at that during the day. And, and so the idea of just telling folks news that they've already heard, very likely heard, uh, you know, that doesn't appeal to Rachel or to anyone on the team. It should be the challenge is to come up with creative ways of, of telling people things that they haven't already heard throughout the course of the day. And so mm-hmm. some days that will mean featuring stuff that I wrote about on the blog, some days not. Um, but it's it's a collaborative process, to be sure. And uh, we have an informal motto on the show. It's called the, it's, it's called the, uh, Increasing the Amount of Useful Information in the World. That is the point of the Rachel Maddow Show, is to increase yep. the amount of useful information in the world. And, and we take the motto, that informal motto seriously. And, and so when the show is coming together, uh, it's not necessarily to pick the most important news of the day, but it's the most, the way it, it's about picking the news and stories that we feel like we can contribute to the most. And so that's, that's kind of how the show comes together. I, I play, you know, I play our role insofar as I'm one of the producers, but it's a, it's a team effort. And in some days I have more influence than others and that's fine because that's just the nature of the business. Um, but uh, I, I'm always glad to be able to contribute any way I can, of course. One of the most unfair uh, characterizations of the Rachel Maddow show is that it's a pundit show. That's a typical, ah, oh, this is the 
It's like the MSNBC version of uh, Tucker Carlson or the MSNBC version of whatever's happening on CNN. It's not. And I think that is so entirely inaccurate. And mostly I think that comes from people who have never actually watched the Rachel Maddow show. Is that a deliberate thing to separate that block from, I mean, more or less everything around it, not only uh, across the other cable uh, news channels, but also on MSNBC itself. There is nothing else on MSNBC that is like the Rachel Maddow show. Is that a deliberate endeavor or is that something that just has evolved because of Rachel's personality and her worldview and so on? Yeah, and that's a good question. I, I'm reluctant to speak for Rachel because I can't. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Rachel can speak for Rachel and that's the way it should be. And so I, I, I am reluctant to, to kind of tell you more about her perspective because I'm, I'm not really comfortable with that. I can tell you though that, you know, for me personally, I, I don't generally have a lot of time over the course of any given day to know what other shows and networks are doing because, mm-hmm. you know, I get so caught up in, in focusing on what we're going to be doing on the show and what I'm going to be writing about for the blog and, and just keeping up with the fire hose of news. It becomes challenging to start to even think about, well, what is network X going to do? What is host Y going to do? Um, it, it, that, that just becomes time prohibitive, at least for me personally, that I, I can't possibly keep up with both the news and what other news shows are doing. Mm-hmm. And so we, we I don't want to say we, I mean, focus really just on, on the news and what I can do to help report the news and how I can contribute to the show when we do the news. I don't, I don't think that there's a whole lot of thought into deliberate uniqueness, if that makes any sense. Mm-hmm. You know, your, to your question about, you know, how deliberate is this? I don't, I don't think there's a whole lot of thought as to what other shows are doing. We want to focus really on what we're doing. And so yeah. uh, if, if we're doing, doing something unique, I take that as a good sign. And so I, <laughs> I, I will interpret your question as praise. <laughs> oh, it is absolutely praise. And in fact, the structure seems to me looking in from the outside that the main thrust of the show is information. Opinion is, you know, obviously part of it, but a much, much, much smaller part of it than essentially any other cable news show. It's all about the delivery of information that you haven't heard yet. And sometimes it's got Rachel's point of view. How could it not? But the information on the show is the central thrust. That's how it seems from the outside, at least. Well, good. Yeah. I mean, like, like, like I was saying a moment ago, if, we're, if, if the point of the show, that our guiding principle is increasing the amount of useful information in the world, and, so, and, and, you, and you as a viewer are, are taking away from that, that, you know, that you're getting into valuable information, then, then we're succeeding. That, 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 then it means that we are doing exactly what we set out to do on any, on any given show. Mm-hmm. So that is very good to hear, and uh, I I appreciate the support. <laughs> well, and, and getting to your specific uh, beat and and the thrust of Matto blog, your coverage of the unemployment numbers, the GDP, the deficit slash debt during the Obama recovery, so invaluable, um, especially to the rest of us who are in the trenches of the blogosphere and doing podcasts and so on. The the reference material is immense. The charts you maintained, especially. Did you ever think you'd hit a month with unemployment numbers that dwarfed the numbers from the Great Recession? No, I, I you know, I it just seems so inconceivable to me after the Great Recession. I, I thought these are the worst numbers that I will see in my lifetime. Mm-hmm. I just, it, it just seemed like a given that 
that it would be impossible <laughs> to see anything like this. And then to see when the, the latest, you know, the job numbers from April, uh, you know, 22 million jobs lost in a single month. I mean, it was, you know, I, I, I can't remember if I put this on the blog or if I just told Rachel this, but, you know, I, I was talking about, like, imagine, I don't know if you're a baseball fan, but imagine someone, you know, the home run, home run record is 60, then 61, yeah. and then steroid era becomes like close up to like 70. Imagine if someone came along in one season and hit 3,000 home runs. <laughs> it would it would defy our understanding of reality. It's like there there are numbers that we can expect. There are then those are extraordinary numbers, but then there are numbers that just boggle the mind, and it, we don't know what to do with that kind of information. And so, right, I mean, I look back at the Great Recession era, losing 700,000 jobs a month, 800,000 jobs a month. Yeah, you know, these were just these were staggering. These were breathtaking numbers. But if you had told me at the time that we would see a month with 22 million <laughs> job losses. I mean, I, I would have thought that was insane. I would have thought that was ridiculous. And it's just, it would seem as if it would require a, a meteor to hit a major city <laughs> or something like that to happen. Right. And, and yet here we are. Yeah. Yeah. It's almost like uh, having to add that to your chart, your unemployment numbers chart uh, would be almost right. like when Rachel had to keep adding more screen space for all the people leaving the Trump administration. <laughs> it seems like that same kind right. of endeavor. Like it keeps getting larger and larger, almost like the Star Destroyer at the beginning of Star Wars. Like, oh, my God, it keeps going on and on and on. <laughs> there was something that happened when the latest jobs numbers came out where BLS reported that they I don't know if it was deliberate, but they kind of framed it as a mistake where they didn't count certain kinds of unemployment within those numbers. And they actually said there was an error in the reporting. And then after the latest number that came out, I think it was 13.3% unemployment. Right. There was then speculation that it was around three percentage points higher than it was. Should we take that seriously? Should we be revising upwards these numbers when we see them? Why was there the mistake? And is it something that we should even bother with? It's, it's an unusual time for the economy, yeah. <laughs> excuse me, and be, because we're dealing with unique set of circumstances that, that are just so. You know, we haven't seen anything like this since 1918. Yeah, it become. I, I'm sympathetic to Bureau of Labor Statistics and Labor Department uh, statisticians in general who are having to deal with what what does unemployment mean? Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it seems like something that would be common sense to most people. If you know you don't have a job and you're unemployed, but when it comes to counting. Uh, for the purposes of these, these statistical analyses and the, and the charts that I've been making, uh, it, there are people who are not working or temporarily not working uh, who are prepared to reenter the workforce, but they're not necessarily looking for a job. There are all these nuances. And so as a result, there, we can look at the unemployment rate as 13.3 in, in a traditional sense. What the Labor Department came out and said is that, well, if we expand the definition, if we widen the aperture of the camera lens just a little bit to include some additional folks who are not working but want to and, and will probably eventually go back, uh, that the unemployment rate is actually three percentage points higher. Mm-hmm. I would caution your listeners against thinking that there's a conspiracy. There, I, I'm very oh, right, right. there is not. Yeah. You know, it, it, I remember Donald Trump in 2016 went around telling you that job numbers are fake and that this is all phony. And that there's all a part of this elaborate scheme that to, to confuse people or mislead people. That's not the case. Mm-hmm. The, the, what is the case is that it gets complicated to determine what the actual unemployment rate is, given the nuances that of people who are are kind of on the edge. 
And so, you know, they came up with what, what some people call the correction, some people, people call the clarification about what the actual unemployment rate is. In some respects, as important as these numbers are, of course, especially for people who are economically vulnerable, these nuances, they don't care about the labels. They care about whether they're going to put food on the table. Mm-hmm. But, but for the purposes of, of us who are kind of looking at the numbers in, in a raw sense, um, I think that we'll see some additional clarity in the coming months as the economy starts to adapt to these unusual circumstances. And so, I mean, I, 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 take, the, I take the face value of the unemployment rate in, improved in May, at least in the technical sense. Uh, but I think you and I and most of your listeners would agree it's not improving nearly enough in terms of the actual health of the economy. It's still 13.3%, which is yeah, exactly. horrendous. And, and, and how many times have we seen numbers like that since the Great Depression? Never. Right, right. Like it was the, the worst month ever was April, and the second to worst was May mm-hmm. since the Great Depression. That's, so it's long before our lifetime. I'm going to assume that we're the seven six. You're, <laughs> you're not 100. <laughs> no, I'm definitely not. No, no. <laughs> and so, you know, with that in mind, um, you know, there's no reason to assume assume any kind of behind the scenes chicanery here. Mm. But I do. It, what we what we can assume is that we're dealing with such unusual circumstances that the usual way of looking at numbers doesn't always tell us everything we need to know. And, you know, there's something else I wanted to ask you about. I've been dying to ask someone, anyone from the show about this. Uh, Speaking of behind-the-scenes chicanery, specifically at the Department of Justice, what was it like around uh, the Rachel Maddow Show offices when the Mueller report dropped? I remember being excited to finally have (laughs) the document in hand. But you know what? To be perfectly honest, I felt a little let down that it was that the scope of Mueller's investigation was in the end so limited, especially given the uh, the roster of news stories that had preceded it. Did you guys have a similar reaction? What was the frame of mind leading up to the Mueller report's release you know, with the Bill Barr letter and everything like that? And then what was it like afterwards, just in terms of your personal reactions? How did you feel about the upshot of the Mueller report? Well, you know, for me personally, when I was going through it the day that it came down, mm-hmm. I think one of the, the things that jumped out at me was the extent to which his, the investigation was obstructed. Mm-hmm. You know, he pointed to, the Mueller and his team pointed to all kinds of areas of wrongdoing, instances in which the president lied, instances in which the president tried to exert unnecessary uh, influence over the process. But it was, it was the obstruction, I think, that stood out to me first and foremost as the most problematic thing that Mueller was pointing out, because... I, I think your point as to as to the, the, the kind of the letdown. You're kind of were, many of us were looking for a Mueller report that was just going to blow the doors off the White House, and that obviously didn't happen. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, when I was when I was reading the document, and I and I took and I started to take stock of all of the things that the president did to undermine the investigation, it I think put a put the investigate put that report in context because we were really only getting a part of the picture. And because the president only wanted us to have part of the picture, and he went out of his way to make sure that we didn't get the full picture. Mm-hmm. So, I, I mean, I will tell you, by the way, just as a trivia moment, a point of personal privilege, I was not in the room with Rachel and the team when, when, the, uh, when the report came out. I was working remotely. Okay. So I can't, actually, I can't actually tell you what the, room was, what the attitude was like, in the, the atmosphere was like in the room. I wasn't there. Yeah, <laughs> but, yeah. But having said that, I can speak for myself when I, when I, was, when I was reading it from, from, from when I, while working remotely. Uh, that was the thing that came to my mind the most, was 
was just how much effort the president and his team took and the, and the effort that they made to to make sure that investigation was derailed as best that they could. Mm-hmm. And, and, and I think that in itself was important because if there was no wrongdoing and there was no scandal, then why would the president be so eager to undermine it and obstruct an investigation into what he considers to be nothing or what he pretends to have been nothing? So that was uh, that was my general take. What was your general take when the uh, Mueller report came out? I guess generally I was satisfied with what was there, what what they presented in each of those two volumes. But at the same time, right. I thought that there was going to be uh, broader allegations, uh, money laundering, certainly uh, some additional indictments along the way, if for no other reason, perjury. But I, I think to an extent we were all kind of subject to the chicanery that was going on with the bar letter that came out, whatever it was, three weeks, four weeks before the Mueller report ever actually dropped. So in that respect, Bill Barr kind of sucked all the air out of the room. No, I think that makes sense. And I I thought it was interesting a moment ago, you referenced uh, what could happen after Trump leaves office. Yeah. You know, I I, I put this on the blog a couple of times, so so regular readers would be familiar with the idea, but, you know, statutes of limitations matter. (laughs) Yeah. You know, there are are things that, that, that Donald Trump needs to be concerned about if and when, in the event that if he were to lose in November 2020, mm-hmm. uh, he would. There, I, I don't. I'm not any predictions. I don't know what would happen. I don't know what kind of interest there would be in the part of law enforcement. But there are things that he did uh, throughout his first term that leave him with some vulnerabilities, let's say. And so, I, I it's interesting to think about what could happen to the president uh, in terms of the legal liabilities uh, in the event of his defeat, and in the event that. If he has a second term, what would that mean for the special limitations? I, I find these those issues and those questions to be fascinating. Oh, yeah. And in fact, I tracked down an OLC memo from, I want to say, 01 or 02, in which uh, the OLC at, uh, at Justice basically outlined that the president can, in fact, be indicted for crimes that he was impeached for. And it doesn't matter if he's acquitted in the Senate, he can still be indicted for those crimes. So I'm encouraged by that at the very least. But, you know, I want to ask you, too, did we ever find out what happened with the counterintelligence investigation? Have we ever received a sufficient explanation as to what it was? Did they not find anything and just dropped it? What happened with that? I, I, you don't mean to send intelligence, do you? Uh, the, whatever, there was a counterintelligence investigation that seemed to be underway. I know Rachel asked, must have asked Adam Schiff about that a million times with regard to yes. Trump and Russia and uh, any sort of way that Trump might have been compromised by Russia. I felt that that was maybe the central thrust of whatever it was, but we heard a lot about a counterintelligence investigation, quote unquote, and it right. seems like we never reached a conclusion to that. I think you're right. I think that those are... I don't. I, I hesitate to say that the investigation is still ongoing because I find it hard to imagine that at that possibility, mm-hmm. especially given the president's influence over the intelligence agencies right now. Yeah. But you're right. These are those. There are those lingering questions that have never fully been satisfactorily answered by by the relevant investigators. And so, you know, I, I've been. I'm glad to see that we've gotten a lot of answers from people, uh, from ent- entities like the Senate Intelligence Committee. I'm glad to see that we've gotten some information from the House Intelligence Committee. We certainly the Mueller investigation helped kind of shape shape our understanding of these related issues. But yes, to your to your point, yes, that there are the counterintelligence investigation that has been discussed and and considered has never really put together a report yeah. that 
kind of captures this information for the public, at least not yet. How are you feeling about Election Day, Steve? Well, I, I, I take note of the polls if for no other reason than it, it offers a sense of direction. You yeah. know, if, if I look at polling in June 2020, and it's telling me that the average roughly is in the ballpark of eight points for a Biden lead, mm-hmm. and then I revisit polling in late September and I see him with a number that's significantly different from eight, well, I want to have that point of comparison. Oh, yeah. Great, sense of, great point. Yeah, yeah. A sense of direction. Mm-hmm. Um, that's not to say that you know, Biden fans should be elated now or, or, dis, or disheartened in September, but it's just getting a sense of where is the electorate at this point in time. That's why I pay attention to polling. But I, I think that I think part of the challenge is that we're dealing with such unusual circumstances between the, between the pandemic, the economic effects of the pandemic, social justice protests. Uh, we don't yet know what the political landscape will look like in November. I mean, think about how far away November is yeah. as compared to that, that amount of time in our, in our recent past. Could I have predicted in February what we, where we would be in June? Well, well no, I couldn't have said that would, be, would have been impossible. If you had told me in February what June would be like, I would have thought that was absurd. And so that's why I approach you know, these predictions with some, with some humility. That said, uh, the political scientist in me looks at the available information and says that Biden has to be seen as the, as the front runner for the, for the 2020 presidential election. Mm-hmm. Uh, he is well positioned uh, and given his advantage, which is unusual for a challenger, uh, it would not surprise me if he were to win. I think that the odds are in his favor. Having said that, uh, it, 2020 is a strange and, and, and ridiculous time. <laughs> yeah. <So>, Understatement. <laughs> yeah. So, <laughs> and so with that in mind, I, I think that Republicans who, who see Biden's lead and are heartbroken, or Democrats who are looking at Biden's lead and elated, all of them should keep those emotions in check, because a lot is likely to happen between now and November, and 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 anyone who can say with confidence exactly what's going to happen is fooling themselves. Well, the book is called The Imposters: How Republicans Quit Governing and Seized American Politics. Again, link in the description at bobseska.com. This book is required reading. Thank you so much for taking the time out to talk with me today, Steve. Bob, you're incredibly kind and generous. I appreciate it very much, and I hope that we can talk again soon. You bet. Take care, my friend. Bye-bye. You too. Bye-bye. Hold it. Don't go anywhere. Now more than ever, we're all thinking about our hygiene. We're washing our hands, sneezing into our arms, trying not to touch our faces, but it's hard to resist. What about your cell phone, though? It's a gigantic carrier of germs, even though it's teeny tiny. Phones are a vector for disease, and we rarely ever clean them. We're constantly touching our phones with our hands and even pressing them to our face. It's time to take cleaning your phone seriously. The Clean Phone Pro Sanitizer uses medically proven UV light technology to kill 99.99% of all the bacteria that comes in contact with your phone. Better than wipes and safe for your device, the Clean Phone Pro gets every inch of your phone clean with nine high-power UVC lights. There's a dedicated wireless charging pad on top of the chamber. You can be sanitizing your other items while wirelessly charging your phone, or you can just use Clean Phone Pro as your go-to charging station anytime. And by the way, The Clean Phone Pro is also selling N95 masks, so if you need masks, and everyone should, go to thecleanphone.com today and buy your N95 masks, as well as the Clean Phone Pro, of course, for just $89 in free shipping when you use the code SEXYLIBERAL, all one word. If you're serious about hygiene, it's time to get serious about cleaning your phone. Go to thecleanphone.com and keep your phone truly clean. Remember to use the code SEXYLIBERAL, all one word, for two-day free shipping, and don't sweat it. It's going to ship immediately. That's thecleanphone.com. 
thecleanphone.com. Look around. You can find cars like these on AutoTrader. New cars, used cars, electric cars, maybe even flying cars. Okay, no flying cars, but as soon as they get invented, they'll be on AutoTrader. Just you wait. AutoTrader.